Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at thedistrict.church. Well, good morning, church. This time we're going to go ahead and dismiss our three and five-year-olds as well as our six and seven-year-olds to their classes. And uh, as they're heading there for everyone else, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them. Luke chapter four is where we're going to be. Luke chapter four. We're in week 17 of our series in the book of Luke. Again, this is authored by Dr. Luke, and it's written to a prominent benefactor named Theophilus so that he would have assurance of the faith in Jesus Christ. And that's what we're praying for you as we walk through this book, is that we would all have assurance in the faith of Jesus, that he, he is who he says he is, that he did what he says he did, and that one day he will come back, and he's going to restore all things and glorify all things, and, and he is our, our supreme treasure. He's our ultimate treasure. And so this book points us to that. This point, book points us to Jesus fulfilling all things and satisfying all things in himself. And so that's what we want to center our attention around. The passage that we're going to be looking at, Luke 4, 14 through 30, is our text for today. And this is the second part of the passage uh, that we will be covering. So we actually covered this passage last week, but we broke it into two parts. One, namely, was uh, we first looked at how Jesus began his ministry, okay? He begins his ministry. Now, this in Luke is him sort of beginning his ministry, but actually between verses 13 to verses 14 is considered the year of obscurity. And so Matthew, Mark, and Luke do not record the first year of Jesus's earthly ministry. If you want to see Jesus's earthly ministry in that first year, you got to go to John and look at John 1.19 through John 4.54. That, that, that is the, the ministry and the miracles and the signs and the teachings that Jesus performs during that quote-unquote year of obscurity. And so it's about one year to 18 months between verse 13 to verse 14. So we're actually entering into the second year of Jesus's ministry here as he is returning in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And he begins to do some things in Galilee. And so what we looked at last week were really just three things. Three things that were important for the life and ministry of Jesus, which means it's also three things that are important to the life and ministry of every single one of us, all right? So if Jesus begins his ministry in the power of the Spirit uh, to do life and to do ministry, how much more do we need the power of the Spirit every single day for life and ministry, for Christian life and ministry? He was obedient to the Father through the power of the Spirit. We are obedient to the Father through the power of the Spirit, all right? All of that happens and functions. We cannot do anything in Christian life or ministry if we are not abiding in the Spirit of God for that strength and that work and that um, um, ministry to be done through us. And so that's how Jesus begins his ministry, connected to the Spirit of God. Second, he came teaching. All right, He came teaching, teaching in the synagogues, uh, teaching in the, in, the, in the town area, and that is pivotal to the ministry of Jesus. It's not just about miracles and signs and wonders and, and, and having circumstances change or providing for people what they physically need, but rather teaching the kingdom of God, teaching the truths of God's word, teaching them the fact that Jesus has come to fulfill everything, that he is showing up on the scene and he is the word of God that is providing for them everything that they need for salvation. 
Miracles, signs, and wonders will come and go. Ultimately, what we need is the truth of Jesus Christ. And so he comes teaching. And what he does in his teaching is he reveals something. And this was the third point for last week, is that he is revealing the heart and will of God. And in 14 through 30, you'll see a passage out of Isaiah that actually reveals this heart of God, that he's bringing good news to the poor, that he's bringing liberty to the captives, that he's healing or bringing sight to those who are blind, that he's bringing liberty and freedom to those who are oppressed, and that he's ultimately bringing in the year of the Lord, the favor of the Lord, the year of Jubilee, as they used to call it. And so this was what God's heart is for is bringing to people freedom in himself. Freedom from anything that's keeping them captive. Freedom, that's, freedom from anything that's keeping them entangled away from relationship with him. And that is the heart and will of the Father. And so as we now move into this passage, what we're going to be seeing is the response of the people to Jesus' ministry. So again, as we are to go in the power of the Spirit and we are to go teaching and proclaiming the truth and we are to go revealing the heart and will of God to the people, there's going to be a response on their part. And we should not be shocked by the response that they have towards the truth that we share. And so today is going to be helping us and how they respond to Jesus is very similar to how they respond to us as well. So we will pick it up in verse 14. I'm going to read through the whole passage again, and then we will dive into um, the second portion of it. Verse 14, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So that's basically, again, everything that we covered last week. And so now we're going to turn our attention to how the people respond to Jesus. Verse 22. And all spoke well of him, and they marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. So stopping there for a moment, at face value, what Jesus is proclaiming is an admirable and it's a noble life, all right? Many people are going to speak well of someone who wants to help the poor, who wants to help the oppressed, who wants to help the vulnerable, who wants to help the disabled. What a noble thing that is. And so at face value, what a good guy Jesus is worth speaking well of him and marveling at all these gracious words that he is speaking. And so the crowd is currently gathered at this synagogue, and they seem to be uh, in agreement with that report that went out about Jesus in verse 14, that that everybody was glorifying him at everything that he was doing and that he was accomplishing. So as he's teaching these gracious words and these wonderful words that are coming from his mouth, at this moment, the people, they're they're marveling at it. They're, They're eating it up. They're loving everything that he is proclaiming. It's like witnessing a magic trick for the first time and you're just amazed and perplexed that it's something that you've never seen before. 
For these people, it's something that they've never heard before. And they're hearing this, and they're so excited about what Jesus is proclaiming, but yet things start to shift in a moment. Because then all of a sudden, now they start questioning, hang on, how can, how can such gracious words and amazing words, things that we are marveling at, how can it be coming from this man? It's like if you do see a magic trick, and you're kind of in wonder about this magic trick, you're in amazement of it, all of a sudden you start putting two together, and you're like, this is just an ordinary person. All right, I'm going to start trying to reverse engineer this magic here. I'm going to try to figure out how they actually did this because I know this stuff isn't real. I know it's not real, and so I'm going to figure out it's a trick. All right, they're tricking us. And so they start to turn their attention to figuring out Jesus, and they say, is this not Joseph's son? How can he be speaking these marvelous words and these gracious words, and how can we be glorifying at his presence when this is not Joseph's son, right? And that wasn't just a question that they were actually asking. This was more rhetorical in the sense that they know the answer. Is this not Joseph's son? Matthew 13, 53-57 records this meeting and it puts it this way. When Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is this not, or is not his, his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Like we know this family. And are not all of his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. Offense. What they're essentially saying is we, we know this family. We know Joseph and, and Mary. We know um, the brothers, James and Joseph and Judas and Simon. We know the sisters. This is an ordinary, impoverished family from Nazareth. So much so that someone later says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And so they're beginning to question this Jesus. How dare He claim these things? So Jesus, knowing what they are thinking, He responds this way. In verse 23 in our passage, he said to them, and, and, and we'll work on this a little bit, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And then he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. Now this proverb that Jesus is quoting as he's hearing them, he's hearing their thoughts, he's knowing what they're thinking, he quotes this proverb to them, and this proverb was a common one among both Jewish and Greek writers. Sometimes the intent of using or saying this proverb is for a physician to prove their worth or to save themselves. Similar to the same phrase that was given to Jesus on the cross when he's saying you can save others, save yourself right now. If you're so powerful, if you're so magnificent, and if you're truly the Son of God, then right now save yourself. In this way, they're testing him. Physician, heal yourself. But in another way that this proverb was also used was whenever someone would proclaim to be a, physi a physician, they would also say, then bring your medicine, heal yourself, and your people. All right, so bring it to your hometown and practice all of your, your medicine on the people in our hometown. Take care of everyone around here. And so they're wanting him in that way to kind of test him to see if he's actually willing to come do that. 
Now, Jesus knows, um, again, that, that what they're talking about here is not um, exactly following up with what we would consider faith. All right, they're, they're not asking him to do this so that they can actually believe in him. What they're trying to do is saying, if you are saying that you are able to do these things, then we want to get in on that. We want to benefit from these things, but it's actually not Jesus that they're wanting to treasure. They're just wanting to get stuff from him. And that's why Jesus brings in Capernaum. He says, what you are thinking is everything that I did in Capernaum, you want me to do here. And this is what happens, or this is what Jesus refers to in uh, Capernaum. Speaking of Capernaum, and this actually goes back to that year of obscurity. Capernaum got to experience several signs and wonders that Jesus performed. Essentially, Jesus set up his headquarters there, and while he was there, he healed the centurion's paralyzed servant in Matthew 8. He also healed another paralyzed man in Mark 2 that was carried by his four friends. Uh, then in John 4, Jesus in Cana, and specifically Capernaum, Jesus heals an official son without even being in the presence of the sick boy who is dying. So Capernaum has witnessed multiple miracles that Jesus performed, and yet this is what Jesus says of Capernaum in Matthew eleven twenty three through 24. He says, you, Capernaum, will you be exalted in heaven? Essentially, he's saying, like, will you make it? Are you going to enter into heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. So, so if you've got two options, you're either going to make it to heaven or you're going to go to hell. He's saying of Capernaum, you're heading to hell right now. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Like anytime we want to compare a sinful area, what do we say? It's like Sodom and Gomorrah, all right? If you've been to Vegas, you're like, it's like Sodom and Gomorrah, all right? It's just nothing but party, drugs, and sex, and alcohol, and it's just all those things, you know? But what they're saying here is what happened in Capernaum and their response to it is actually worse than what went on in Sodom. And that if Jesus came and did the miracles in Sodom, they would have actually received it better than what Capernaum did. And what the point that he's trying to drive home to those here in Nazareth is, just if I come in and do the miracles and do the signs and do the wonders, you are not going to accept it. You are going to still reject me. And that's why he says, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I already know that you are not going to receive me just by the signs and wonders and miracles. Because I see your heart. I hear your thoughts. I know your thoughts. And I see your heart. And I know what you want. You don't want me in order to come and, and forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness and to grant you access to heaven for eternity. That's not what you want. What you want is me to come in and help your circumstances. That's all you want from me. You, you're, you're viewing me like a genie in the bottle. That's exactly what you want. You want to entertain me for a little while so that I can take care of some of the ailments that are going on there. And then you're going to reject me and cast me out once you've gotten from me the good things. But you haven't actually received me. A lot of times what we want from God is just God's stuff. We don't want God. 
And that's what the, that, that's, that's the biggest issue we deal with. I mean, that, that goes all the way back to the fall, does it not? Adam and Eve. They had God. And they got everything else thrown into it. Enjoy anything and everything. I'm just going to give you one rule. The one rule is don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because when you do, you're going to enter into death. Total freedom. And the reason for the one, one rule, I believe to this day, is to show that we're not God. We have to have boundaries because we're finite and He's infinite. If we had total, complete freedom and access, we're God. There has to be a boundary to show that there's creator and creation. And he gave us one boundary that actually allows for us to submit. To submit to his good will and his good design and his good pleasure, just trusting and obeying him. And if we trust and obey, guess what? We get to enjoy anything and everything. Anything and everything. And that's what they wanted. They wanted his stuff. They're still falling into the same lie that Adam and Eve had. So for Nazareth Nazareth to say, do for us what you did in Capernaum, Jesus is just face-palming hard here. And that's why Jesus then states, truly, truly, I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. And then he goes on to say this. But in truth, I tell you, this is verse 25, in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. And none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. What we have here are two stories from the Old Testament where God sent his grace to Gentiles who would believe and thus withheld his grace from Israelites who were in unbelief and disobedience. What the Israelites were willing to reject These stories show that Gentiles were willing to accept, namely, belief and obedience to God. And these stories would essentially rile up Jewish people because of their intense hatred that they had for the Gentiles. Even though these stories were a part of their past, they believed that they had righted their wrongs and that they deserved God's favor once more, once again, and therefore also believed that the Gentiles were unworthy of God's favor and that they were unclean. So at this point, they feel like we've, we've fixed everything. Like we are being obedient to the law in their mind with the rules that they've attached to it. We're being faithful to protect the law and do all the right things. And therefore, we have earned your favor. And so for you to take your favor and go to those who don't do your law, who don't care about you, who who live wicked lives, how dare you go to them? And so this story would rile them up and would make them so angry that literally they're willing to put Jesus to death. But it's revealing the heart of God that His grace is for those who have faith, not in and of themselves, but rather only in the Messiah. 
Because one thing we know is that what they're wanting in this moment is they're wanting Jesus to come and see all that they've done and then grant them faith and eternity in heaven. That's what they want. But rather, and hopefully, like that their obedience leads to faith. And rather, what Jesus is proclaiming, especially when he comes to these two stories in the Old Testament, there was no obedience from the widow in Zarephath and Naaman the Syrian. No obedience. But he shows up and he asks them, do you believe? And by their belief, he heals and then they respond in obedience. They respond in obedience. That's the way God set it up. We can do nothing, nothing that would pull God towards us and say, good job. Here's some grace. Here's some faith. Here's some salvation. Here's a miracle. Here's a sign. Here's a wonder. Nothing that we can do. And they took offense at this. Because again, we're working our tails off here. We're doing everything right. How dare you say that you're not going to bring favor to us because of our lack of faith. And so when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. How quickly a conversation can go from marveling and glorifying and and being astonished at all these good things that you're saying to then being filled with wrath. And they rose up and they drove him out of the town and they brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. That escalated quickly. (laughs) Throw him down the cliff. And I love this. The literal best Jesus juke ever. Verse 30. But passing through their midst, he went away. He went away. Why did all in the synagogue go from marveling at his gracious words to now filled with wrath and seeking to throw him down the cliff? Well, the truth is because they believed they deserved God's salvation as a reward for their religious system. So for God to reject them on the basis of them not changing, that was a slap in the face. It was an offense. And, this, and in this case, they believed a capital offense worthy of killing Jesus. They believed their salvation should be a result of their obedience and not their faith. Jesus is saying that their salvation should be a result of faith and not their obedience. Although true faith actually leads to a life of obedience. Here's what, how the Apostle Paul sums this up. Ephesians 2, 8-9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. The gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. What he's coming in to say is, if these Pharisees don't repent, if they don't change, remember I mean, that's what he came teaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I'm ushering in a new way of doing things. You think you're going to attain righteousness by doing all the works. It's not going to work. I'm ushering in a new kingdom, so I'm having you. I'm giving you an invitation, an opportunity to change your mind here. Change your mind. Repent. Repent is not, 
a negative term. It's an invitation to a whole new life with a new king and a new kingdom. Repent is, is Jesus coming in with good news to say, you can stop. You can stop doing all of these things that's not working for you. Whether it's you thinking that it's all the good things that might earn God's uh, uh, reward, or you think that it's all the bad things that's keeping His reward from you, the beauty is, is that repent is for both. Repent is saying, stop doing all the bad things that's keeping His reward from you, and at the same time, stop doing all the good things that you think is bringing His reward to you that it's actually not. Stop. Stop and believe in Jesus alone. I'm here to do it all for you. To do it all for you. So that none of us have any right to boast. We, we don't get to enter into the kingdom of heaven at those pearly gates. We don't get to enter in and say, man, all those good things I did. Where's my mansion? I earned this. I got a key. I'm ready to go. It doesn't work that way. But rather, we come hobbling through because by the gift of God, we don't deserve to be here, but because of Jesus, I've got a key. I've got a key. And I'm allowed in. All because of what Jesus did. I have no reason to say why I was awesome and deserve to be here. But rather, I'm here because Jesus is awesome and I'm worshiping Him and only Him. I have faith in Him. I believe in Him. I trust everything that He has accomplished for me. If they don't repent, essentially they're hearing Jesus declare to them that they will spend an eternity in hell and that's offensive. That's offensive. That's casting judgment. That's revealing wickedness. That's unfolding a life of sin and destruction and death. And for those who continue in disbelief, they are going to be enraged by this truth. How dare you tell me that if I don't change, I'm going to hell. And yet the Bible, by God's inspiration, is declaring that very thing. If you don't change, you are going to hell. You're casting judgment on yourself. For it's only through Jesus that anything changes. Only through Jesus. But for those who receive this good news with humility and mourning and thus are sorrowful and sorry and plead to the Lord to forgive them of their sins and trespasses and works that they have fallen short of, God is gracious. God is merciful to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I mean, amen, church. Is that not why we're here today? Is that not why we're here today? If we're here for any other reason other than God forgiving us of our sins and then calling us into mission to share that good news, that wonderful, astonishing, glorious news to other people, then we're here as a hobby, and it's a lame hobby. Because it's a difficult hobby. If you're not here by the grace and gift of God, then you're here on your own merit, and it's already hard enough by the gift of God. It's already hard enough by His grace and His strength that He empowers us through the Spirit of God to live the Christian life and also do the Christian ministry. 
I couldn't imagine. You've got to be the most depressing person if you're here doing this on your own effort. And it's not from the gift and grace of God. And so Jesus was bold to speak this truth. But this truth is necessary for salvation. How can we know we are sinners without having someone tell us what God's law is and that we have broken it? And therefore, we do deserve the punishment God deems necessary, which is death. How do we escape death unless someone throws us the life preserver, which is the perfect life substitutionary death and resurrection of Jesus Christ in our place on our behalf? If we don't hear Jesus and we don't hear repent, then we're stuck. We're stuck. And all those around us are stuck. Because again, there's nothing that they can do unless they hear the truth that Jesus has come proclaiming. He's come proclaiming it. The Apostle Paul in Romans 10, 5-17 says this. I'm going to read this, and this is heading into our closing here. This kind of sums, sums up the whole connection of God's heart, will, teaching, as well as the response of the people and how they're able, even able to respond. Paul says this, For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. For it is with the heart that one believes and is justified, and it is with the mouth that one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For, the, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. Again, they killed Jesus for that. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him, him alone. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's our ministry, is to proclaim Jesus so that they have an opportunity to call on Him. To call on Him. Lord Jesus, forgive me, for I am a sinner and I have sinned against You. And I have done, uh, I, I've, I've tried doing a bunch of good things that fell short. And I've done a lot of bad things that obviously fell short. And so I need forgiveness. If that's the only way that I can get back into relationship with God of heaven and earth, God of all creation, God who created everything in its order, in His design, who is perfectly 100% holy for all eternity, if the only way I can be in relationship with Him is if He forgives me of my sins, not as, a, not as anything that I earned, but as the free gift and grace of God, then I'm calling on Jesus to forgive me. I am believing that he has all authority to do that. And that it's because of his perfect life and his sacrificial death and his resurrection that has earned for me the death of my sin, the righteousness of his life now becomes mine, and the resurrection that guarantees I get a new glorified body that will be able to be in God's presence for all eternity. He's done all the work. So because he's done all the work, I believe in him. 
I trust in Him and His merit and His works and not my own. That's the message we're proclaiming. And so then the question is, if they are to call on Him, how do they do that? Verse 14, How then will they call on Him in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they've not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Guys, that's where we're at. What we are called to do is first and foremost, repent because our way is not going well. Completely change that mindset. Trust His and trust the work that He's accomplished that is providing for us forgiveness of sins. And then we, every single one of us, don't just hear preaching and you're like, all right, that's, that's Dwayne and Josh's job in Ransford. Like, they've got that covered. Preaching is actually also just a, a broad term for declaring, like it's an evangelistic term that's just declaring good news. Declaring good news. We are all ministers called to declare good news to those around us who need it. It's going back to fulfilling that Isaiah passage that Jesus uh, proclaimed that I am here to fulfill. I am declaring good news to the poor. And what he's referring to ultimately as poor are those who are poor. Poor emotionally, poor physically, poor spiritually, poor intellectually. Poor in the sense that they do not have God. The, the, the biggest difference between rich and poor are those who don't have God. If you have God and God lives in you and you're in Christ and, and all of that, you're a Christian, you're in God. Like you, you possess everything. You're receiving an inheritance one day. You're the richest person who's walking around. Literally. Those who don't have God are the most impoverished people. All they have is what they have physically here and it's not going with them. That's where rust and moth come in and destroy, and you know those passages. We need Jesus. And everyone around us needs Jesus. And Jesus has come proclaiming his good news and his truth. And he's called us to do the same thing. And the beauty is, is that there's going to be some people, when they hear these gracious, wonderful words, They're going to put their faith in Jesus. They're going to believe Him. And that is a glorious day. Paul goes on to say later on that there's nothing greater than seeing a lost person become saved. Nothing greater. The way that he refers to it is, is my joy is complete by seeing someone who is blind now see Seeing someone who is a sinner now become a saint. That completes his joy. What he's saying there is, is, is Jesus is my greatest treasure, and I know I'm going to be satisfied by him for the rest of eternity, but during this level of here in earth, it doesn't get any better than sharing the good news and seeing a lost person become saved. There is nothing that tops that. Win a million dollars, doesn't come close. Nothing tops it. And so it goes so far to say, and this is just 
crazy to me that he says, I, was, I so want others to come to know Jesus that I'm willing to be cut off if my kinsmen, the Jews, the Hebrews, would just believe. I mean, that's crazy to me. But it shows that he has fully taken on the heart and posture of the Lord. That he's willing to die in order for others to live. That's the heart of Jesus. I'm willing to die so that they might have life. And that brings us to our time of communion here. Your good works, your efforts of trying to earn God's favor, trying to make something of yourself in this life, trying to be good enough to get to heaven, need to be brought, they need to be brought to the cross. And also your evil works, you're, you're knowing what you should do and not doing it, your hypocrisy, your impatience, your cynicism, your greed, your lack of stewardship of the resources God has given you, all of your sin needs to be brought to the cross. Brought to the cross. And I know we always read the 1 Corinthians 11 passage as we partake of communion, but I want to read the second portion of it for you as we enter into a time of just reflecting here for a moment. It says this, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Therefore, let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Communion is this combination where we are examining ourselves and we're continuing to enter into this process of bringing our, our, our short failings to the Lord so that we experience life and sustenance from this meal that we receive. That we're actually being strengthened just like any time you eat a meal, you eat for strength and life and vitality. This is a spiritual meal in which we come and we bring those things that are creating illness and creating discord and creating relational strife and creating issues within our lives. We're bringing it to the Lord and we're examining ourselves and we're confessing these things. Now again, once and forever, you're saved. You're forgiven. But guess what? You still mess up, right? And you're not confessing so that you get saved again, but you're actually confessing so that you provide relief to the fact that you're no longer living the old self anymore. You don't have to go through every single day with this identity crisis that, why do I keep doing this thing that I hate when I really want to do this thing over here? Paul uses that language. The thing I want to do, I don't, and I get frustrated with myself. And so I need a way to be able to express this. And communion is one of those aspects where we are able to come as we're wrestling with our flesh and the Spirit of Christ within us, we're able to come and be reminded of who we are in Christ because of what He's already paid for at the cross. He's already broken His body and shed His blood so that you don't have to. And so as we beat ourselves up every single week, Trying to, I'm, I'm walking out of step with the Spirit. How dare me? I'm, I'm doing this and I shouldn't. No, I, 
flesh, sin, yes, is still apparent within our lives, but we now have the power in Christ to crucify those things and be reminded that He's already paid the penalty for us. So God looks at us with no condemnation over our lives, and that's what He says in Romans 8.1. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So this is an opportunity for us to come to the table, receive the body and the blood in order to show that there is no condemnation. He does not look at you as if you deserve death but rather is strengthening you and empowering you. So examine yourself to bring those things that are creating that issue, that strife, that wrestling as Paul talks about. Bring those things and be freed of them in an act of worship, thanking Jesus for what he did once and for all 2,000 years ago at the cross. At the cross. So I'm going to invite the band, if you guys would go ahead and come on up here. And we're going to enter into just a time of examining, a time of, of, of inviting you to have some freedom here, to where you sit down, you, you, you'll come up, you'll take the elements, you can, if you want to sit down front here, that's fine, if you want to go back to your seat, that's fine, but we're going to give you some space, we're going to give you some space to just reflect and just think, man, these are the things in my life that I don't want to do. And I want to trust in the same good news that is for the poor and for the oppressed and for those held captive, for those who are blind. The same good news that that grace has been poured out to me that is providing me liberty from these things. And as after we kind of take some space just, just getting those things off our chest, examining ourselves so that we actually don't have the judgment of it anymore, we provide the freedom, we will then enter in together the process of communion. So let's go ahead and stand and let's enter into to a few minutes of time where you're able to come up, grab the elements, either pray down here if you want or you can go back to your seats and spend some time in prayer of just examining. Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at